Welcome to the World Football Summit podcast, the show for football industry leaders who want to stay ahead of the game. We bring you the latest insights, trends, and stories from the experts driving innovation and progress in sports business worldwide. Join us as we dive deep into the ideas and initiatives transforming the world of football. From sustainability and innovation to player development, fan engagement, and everything in between. Our goal is to unite the global football industry and drive positive change and progress. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I'm your host, Jaime, CMO at World Football Summit. Man, do we have a fun one for you today. Steven Mendes is our amazing guest today. In case you don't know him, Steven is an author of books like The Real Madrid Way or What Happened to Serie A. He's a senior academic advisor to FIFA. He's helping UAX Rafa Nadal School of Sport in America. And overall, he's just a true football business expert. We discuss a bunch of things, including the main lessons he learned while writing his books, what the football industry can learn from American sports. We also talk about current dynamics like multi-club ownership, the possible Super League, broadcasting, the life experience at a match, where he sees the future of football. We also talked about his role at the UAX Rafa Nadal School of Sport and, and so much more. But before we go into it, don't forget to subscribe and read the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your industry colleagues. And remember, you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, we send updates, trends, and everything that goes on around events. You can find the link in the show notes. And the thing is that 2024 is going to be a busy one for World Football Summit. We have events coming up in London, Mexico, Sevilla. You can check it all out on our website. And nothing else from my side. I hope you enjoy this amazing conversation with Stephen Mendes. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the World Football Summit podcast. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. And, and I think, well, I think I'm going to have fun and I think the audience is going to have a lot of fun. So, so yes, welcome. Thank you very much. So, Stephen, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, but before we do, I was wondering, for those that for whatever reason don't know who you are, um, if you could introduce yourself to the audience and, and I always like to ask my guest, um, why is it that you do what you do? Why a career in football or in sports? Okay, well, I have an unorthodox background um, and I really still consider myself an outsider in sports. But uh, my career started in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. I also was a consultant at um, McKinsey and Company. And then I was a, a um, vice chairman and chief of staff to the president of uh, Citigroup during the financial crisis. And after that, I decided to write a book um, for my PhD dissertation. Um, and the book was called What Happened to Goldman Sachs? which just happened to be read by executives at Real Madrid. And so when I coincidentally met them, not knowing that they had read my What Happened to Goldman Sachs book, um, they had told me that they had read the book um, and they really enjoyed it. And would I come to the stadium and, and meet them? And I had barely heard of Real Madrid. Um, obviously, I was a casual fan of North American sports, um, but never followed European football or or Real Madrid or any of the clubs. So it was kind of a unique experience in that I, I didn't have this bias um, in European football. Uh -huh. Okay, interesting. Um, and you're also an academic advisor for FIFA, right? So I was wondering, um, what what are the priorities of the role or, or what are like, you know, the the, the areas where, where you focus on? Um, so um, after I had written a book about USA soccer, um, as well as the Real Madrid book and a book about Syria, and then, um, FIFA reached out to me and said, Hey, there's an academic outsider who is looking at the sport of football in a unique way. Um, and they'd like me to continue to think about and doing research into the sport of football, as well as, um, help them write um, business school cases about different clubs so that best practices could be shared amongst um, executives. Um, they asked me to uh, teach um, some basic business principles in terms of how to put together a strategic plan. Um, they asked me to work with some individual executives and they asked me to, to um, help um, facilitate the sharing exchange of information. Oh, nice. Okay. And, and speaking about your books, what triggered um, you to write all, all those books that you've written? 
So after I uh, met the Real Madrid people and became friends with them, I was fascinated with how they managed and ran the club. So I would ask them, how do you select players and how do you make money and how do you make it sustainable? And the answers really surprised me after having read Moneyball or being, you know, at the you'd read in the media that it all came down to basically money and talent and, and that with Moneyball, it was data analytics. So Real Madrid was talking to me about something completely different. And I thought that story should be told. Okay. And and anything, I mean, because you've, from what you've mentioned, no, you've worked with uh, Real Madrid, with Serie A, you've looked into that, you've looked into US soccer. Um, is there anything that surprised you most while writing either the books or maybe just the research phase? Um, while working with uh, Real Madrid, what surprised me was the emphasis on values and culture. So people ask me, what's the genius behind Florentino Perez and their management team? And I try to explain that the way they think about the world is, is they get the values and the beliefs from their socios, their fans who actually own the club. And then they spend their time trying to put together the players, the experience, the community that follows those values and beliefs. And so that was their primary focus. And that really surprised me because I thought the primary focus would be to win. And then yeah. they told me that winning really was a, was a result, not really their mission. So that really surprised me, especially living in New York where, you know, you hear the Yankees all the time, you know, winning is everything. Yeah. So I, th I think for Real Madrid, obviously they want to win trophies, but there's a lot more to it for them. So that really surprised me in, in that book. Um, in the Syria book, I was in that research. I was just surprised at at how how great Syria was in the '80s and '90s. I think people forget that, and then the sharp decline really in the in the 2000s. And the then the question was is what was going to happen? Um, and ultimately, we predicted that there was there's a lot of great history, great rivalries, great clubs, a lot of passion. So we thought that eventually a lot of Italian American owners or other owners who were trying to, to accumulate um, sports clubs would buy into Serie A clubs, which is what's happening. So I think that I didn't, you know, I, I, I think our, our end result was, was correct or prediction, but I just did not really understand how far Serie A had dropped um, and the reasons behind that. There are many, many reasons. In the USA Soccer book, I think the, the thing that surprised me is, is that um, I came to this conclusion that the World Cup is not as much a competition of nations as it is uh, postal codes or zip codes where people live because the players come from very concentrated areas. And it's a competition of family members because many of the players have brothers or fathers who played at, played at a very high level. And then it's also a story or competition of immigration. So immigrants, as to they come back to their parents' homeland or their grandparents' homeland, make meaningful contributions. So those three, you just don't think about those three aspects really helping create a team that can be ultimately successful. So that was kind of one thing that I found fascinating. And the second was is the importance of a dominant club uh, within a country. So when Spain wins the World Cup, many of the players are from Barcelona. When mm -hmm. Germany wins the World Cup, Bayern Munich's, um, many players are from Bayern Munich. So it makes it much easier because the players obviously don't have much time to practice and be together. So when you have a core group of seven, eight, nine players from one team, it gives them an advantage versus in the United States. I don't think there's more than two players on the same team. So the United States is very dispersed throughout many, many different leagues. And then you all of a sudden bring all these players for different styles, attitudes, backgrounds together. It makes it very challenging. I think when I hear you those, uh, you talk about those two points, in a way it speaks about identity, no? I mean, because on one hand, I find it super interesting what you just said about the zip code. Um, and if you think about it, it's actually true how, how important the zip code is um, to, to a team. But then also what you're saying is when you have a dominant club in that national team, at the end of the day, it's a club that they have their own identity. And I guess it's easier to plug in, you know, two, three, four players there, which was what happened with Spain in that team, for example, when they had, you know, um, different 
players there, but the overall structure followed the identity of Barcelona, no? So so I guess that would be the main conclusion, no? Yeah, and that, and that really, that's, an, that's the perfect way to read it, which is identity is incredibly important, and that's what even like Real Madrid, that's what surprised me is, is that their focus on their identity and who they are, and it's, it's, just think about this, when you hold up a white jersey, it means something. People immediately think of a style of play, great players, Balladour winners, trophies. It just, it means something, the way they're going to play, the identity of how they're going to play. Mm-hmm. And the same thing when you hold up a Barcelona jersey, you, you think Tiki Taka, you think some of the Gregorian yeah. you think of all these things. So it that helps. When I meet clubs that the, and I ask the owner, what is your identity? And then they tell me what they think it is. And then I ask somebody else and it's different than what the owner said, then I can, I immediately start to see that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the best way I try to figure out what people's identity is, I ask them, who's your rival? Because your rival will help define what your identity is for your players and your fans and everybody else. So mm-hmm. I, it's easy if I ask, a, you know, Real Madrid, who's your rival? And they say Barcelona. Well, then I can start to understand why and it helps me understand what the identity of Real Madrid is. So yeah, identity is really important for the for the fans, the players, the, the brand, the financial aspect of it all. Indeed. The staff, everybody, I guess, right? Yeah. At the end of the day. Um, and I think I'm also thinking, now that you're mentioning the U.S., um, I think you mentioned in your book that one of the things that needs to happen for for the U.S. to have like a, you know, a powerful national team, let's say, is to have a strong domestic league, no? Um, and I'm wondering, now that Messi is there, and, and not only that, but you, and I've discussed this with other American guests on the show, which is basically that football or soccer, however you want to call it, is becoming embedded in the culture of, of the country, you know, because you see not only Messi, but you see, you know, things like Tech Lasso, and then you have your, your Wrexham fans in the U.S. I mean, at the end of the day, you see it everywhere. Uh, women's football, of course, I mean, that can be avoided. So do you think with that in mind, are they going to be able to become a strong league? and have that international impact at the national level? Well, I think they're getting stronger each year um, at the MLS level. So people have to remember this. In in the uh, early 2000s, the owners of MLS had to buy the rights to televise the World Cup because no one else bid. So the Americans would not have seen the 2002-2006 World Cup on television if it wasn't for the MLS owners. So go from that to... You know, the Premier League uh, and, and all these rights being bought, Apple taking the MLS rights, the MLS has come a long way. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Having, having said that, it, the one thing with MLS, and this is historically because they always were in a precarious financial position because of... Um, they were just trying to build up a fan base and you have to pay players and there's a lot of expenses and everything else. They instilled, and I think this made all the sense in the world at the time, a uh, salary cap. So when you have a salary cap, then all the players, all the talent is, is dispersed uh, amongst uh, all the clubs. And that allows parity, which is similar to the NFL, where you have, you know, lots of teams could potentially win. And so their belief is that excitement. The, the issue with that is, is it's not like Bayern Munich, where they have a large group of German talented players on one team, or in Spain at Real Madrid and Barcelona. So that's kind of, and or in France and PSG. So that's kind of the issue the MLS has from a structural perspective. But the league getting stronger and stronger. Obviously, American players are getting better and better, and the owners are investing in academies. Um, so people didn't realize this as, as you know, when, when a player is sold, they grew up at a certain academy and they go to another club, they receive, um, solidarity payments and compensation, Mm -hmm. uh, for having developed the player in the United States. That was not the case until relatively recently. So there was no economic incentive to develop a player because they would leave for free essentially. And they, the team wouldn't get compensated. So that got changed. And so now you see a lot of MLS clubs investing in their academies because now they see it as a profit center, which is how many clubs around the world see it, that they can get a return on their academy players. So now you're seeing a greater investment in academy players. The issue is is that the academy players are going to leagues and clubs all over the world. Yeah. 
because they're those those elite talented players many of them are are not playing in the mls yeah and and one of the other things that that you see is um the increase in valuations right i mean i think the average right now the average franchise in in the mls it's it's around like 600 million almost 580 million or something like that so um that has been amazing to see in in some cases you could even wonder you know when when you see inter miami or lafc speak about being valued at 1 billion it makes you wonder no but i was wondering well that's why that actually got to syria because we said look at the mls valuations so if you're going to buy an mls club and spend 600 million dollars or 800 million dollars or a billion dollars well you can go buy a syria club and potentially participate in the champions league and yeah or european competitions and everything else so it's kind of a that's why we thought it was like on a relative value basis you'd see people say well i'd rather own a team in syria than mls yeah so and and, and what have been the keys to see those valuations rise so much i mean what 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 has what have been the main drivers well i think that people believe that the as you said the the growth and the momentum of the league is continuing and so it's kind of a what people believe is going to happen in the future and the valuation. So when you look at NFL teams going for $6 billion and NBA teams going for $4 billion and people say, well, football or soccer, soccer in the States is, is one of the fastest growing sports, especially in the young, in the younger audiences, um, people see opportunity. And now the United States has, has a very unique thing because they have Messi today, which is amazing yeah. and, and brought in other great players. Then you have the Copa America that's happening, I believe this in yeah. 2025, you have the, the FIFA Club World Cup. Mm -hmm. And then in 26, you have the World Cup. So it's just going to be more high quality matches on American soil, dr drawing an audience, getting more excitement and recognition and exposure. So people just think that uh, soccer will continue to get more important. Um, more growth uh, in the U.S. Definitely momentum seems to be something that's going to be building up, no? So so do you think with that in mind, with that outlook, that those valuations are actually sustainable? And I'm referring actually to men's and women's soccer. Because in women's soccer, you also see amazing increase in valuations, no? Um, like, you know, yeah, think, amazing. Amazing yeah. valuations. Um, yeah, I, I don't, because... The MLS doesn't release the financial information of the various clubs, so I, I don't really know um, mm -hmm. what the ultimate return would be on on if someone bought a club at six hundred million dollars or a billion dollars in MLS. Um, but there's certainly growth um, there. I think the the issue ultimately is going to be: Are there international fans, fans outside of the United States, who will want to watch MLS? Yeah, because if you look at the Premier League. I think Premier League has crossed over where they make more revenue, media rights revenues from outside the UK than they do inside the UK. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I think the MLS is a long way away from that. Um, so on the women's side, I think many people don't realize how influential these, these women professional athletes are um, in the United States and globally. And there's a tremendous amount of value, I think, um, in women's sports. I'm happy to see the valuations go up. It's a, it's a long-term investment, but it's like when I tell people that I think there were two American women soccer players who sold more jerseys on their first day when they signed with Man U than Paul Pogba did. I mean, that just wow. blows people's mind, right? So USA women's jerseys, I think they sold more Nike jerseys than um, the Brazilian national team. Wow. So I think people just don't realize this. And, and when you look at in America, there's something called NIA, NIL, sorry, name, image, yep. likeness. Yep. You'll see that many of the, the college athletes were getting paid. The women are actually... In that, in that, many women are in the top ten uh, athletes being paid. So they're really strong because they they also many of them identify with values and ideas yeah. and other stories that uh, that uh, people buy into. 
So that's why I think that women's sports, I'm, I'm actually like, I'm glad to see it's finally getting that recognition it deserves. Agree. And, and in many cases, from what I've heard, is that women football players or soccer players are more actually accessible than the men's players, which actually helps um, more partnerships, more commercial activations. They're really more open to, to do new things. And kind of that's where you get your engagement with young fans, no? Right. Uh, it's not as traditional, right? Um, and in general, I mean, I want to take advantage of your knowledge of, of the American sports industry in general, no? And um, I don't know if, if there's any... Um, main lesson that you think the football industry as a whole can learn from American sports and, and this could be NFL, the NBA, um, Major League Baseball or even college football. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, uh, you know, college or college sports in general. Um, anything that stands out? Well, the number one thing is, is the, everyone seems to think that more football and soccer, more matches, more thing is a, is good because it generates more revenues. But I think if you look overall, the revenues per match are going down. And I, I, I think that the NFL yeah. has done a really good job of having scarcity value. Mm -hmm. So the NFL only has, I can't, I can't remember, 17, 18 regular season games, so once a week, and then they go into a playoff um, yep. of teams. So once a week, all, all of America and the people who are around the world like are all just fixated on their televisions. I think in the, the, the European football market so saturated, there's like games every single day, various quality, everything else. So you look at the NFL revenues, they're dramatically higher than for yeah. example, Premier League. I think even if you add up all the leagues in, in Europe, I think. I think yeah. the NFL would still be higher. So it is, it is from, from whatever the lessons is, is quality like matters for fans to uh, get excited and engaged and everything else. So I think that's one of the lessons I think people are learning. And then the, the other is, is I, I think that big matchups are, are really important. So in the United States, we've seen college football, for example, have realignment of conferences. So when I grew up, there was the Big Ten in the Midwest. So those were the college teams like Michigan, Ohio State. And then on the West Coast, you had, um, you know, UCLA, USC, mm -hmm. these teams. And then they would play their own little region. And then eventually the winner of the Big Ten, the Midwest, would play the winner of the, the West Coast, the Pac-10, in something called the Rose Bowl. So you have these two regional people playing each other in one big match that everyone really enjoyed. Today, what's happening is is the Big Ten and the the Pac Ten, the best the, the Big Ten took four of the best Pac Ten teams and said the other team, Stanford, UC Berkeley, where sure there's a fan base, but not a national fan base really. And we don't need them anymore. And we're actually just gonna play it during the season the whole time. So they want more of the Michigan USC matchup or Ohio State yeah. versus UCLA matchups during the season, and people just don't want to see and pay for. You just, you see like the casual fan doesn't really want to watch, which is a great rivalry Stanford versus UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. It's just nationally people don't care. So you start to see that trend happening, and I think that's sort of leading to a lot of the the. the you look at those two things. And you start applying them to European football, it starts telling yeah. you that people care less about the the rivalries that used to matter or that were regionally important because you're trying to satisfy a more global, larger fan base. That's actually a great segue into something I wanted to ask you, which is what is your point of view on, you know, a, let's call it a closed competition system in European football. I think everybody will probably then assume we're talking about the Super League, but it's not the only case. Um, but what are your thoughts on on that um, concept being implemented in football? I don't know all the ins and outs of the Super League, so I'm not an expert on it. But my understanding is is that it wasn't closed. It was there were certain members that were going to, and this is now the historical one. I know it's changed since then, but the, mm -hmm. the one was is that they were certain founding members, and then there was a mechanism in which people would qualify to come up into the uh the league so I, I i think it's actually misleading or misrepresentation to say that that was a closed 
league. The MLS obviously is closed, meaning that there's no promotion or relegation. And the NFL is closed, meaning there's no promotion or relegation. But I don't believe the Super League was. So I, I don't know. Uh, my sense is, is that the feeling is, is in Europe that there needs to be some level of opportunity because of what the sport represents to get mm -hmm. into the top. Um, at the same time, I think that when you look at some things like the Premier League, so people tell me the Premier League is, a, is an open competition. Well, then I ask people, when was the last time any of the big six got relegated? I don't know. <laughs> or at least since they've had ownership, like current ownership structure that they have. So Man City, since that they, since their new ownership took over, does anyone really believe there's an opportunity for them to be relegated? I guess if they have a, you know, something drastic happens, but I think in general, no, or just do people think Liverpool is going to get relegated anytime soon? So to me, Yes, I know it's a promotion relegation system, but not really because to me the Premier League is a is almost a, a super league for its own six now with Newcastle seven mm -hmm. argument for Wolves as well, being that they they have a unique ownership and association and all this other stuff. So I, I don't it's hard for me to to answer that because of the way that I think people perceive it, perceive it, and then tell me what it is. I mean, it's the same thing. I ask people. How many Champions League spots in the Premier League have gone to non-Big Six clubs and Newcastle um, with their new ownership in the last 20 years? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing, but I would guess one, which is a Leicester City once-in-a-lifetime yeah. example. And then I, when people bring that up as an example, I say, well, okay, well, what happened to Leicester City? Yeah, there you go. That kind of gets into like football, like sustainability, because it's kind of like, look at the clubs that are not in the big six or big seven or whatever you want to call the UK. The ones that are at the bottom, take the bottom five, the people that are always consistently kind of coming up and down, up and down. Are they really in the same league or situation or revenues are really competitive with the top five, six, seven clubs? Not really, because I just pointed out that they're not really fighting for Champions League spots or fighting for just survival. So the owners, what do those owners do? Well, they spend all the money on, on the players because they feel like they need the best players in order to compete at the top level. So are they really interested in spending a lot of money in stadiums, infrastructure, fan experience, youth academies? I, I think if you're an owner trying to prioritize your money, you're like, I, I need to stay up there, otherwise yeah. I fall down. And if you look at the, the uh, championship underneath the Premier League and look at the percentage of revenues that um, teams spend on players, the average is over 100%. So obviously that's yeah. not sustainable when you spend more money on players than your actual revenues. And um, so, that, so that just tells you there's no money for the investment in infrastructure, yeah. academies and things like that. So something to me seems kind of doesn't make sense. So yeah. Turn things off, no? And and, yeah. and I guess, to me, I, I, I've thought about this while, one of the pillars of the sports business model is, is broadcasting rights, no? And this is not just applied to football. You see it across all sports. Um, and they depend, in many cases, heavily on, on broadcasting to be their main source of revenue, no? And, and sometimes it could be like 50% from what I've seen. But what happens in a world where those rights actually even plateau or they even decrease when you're seeing... Um, everybody talks about the, the recent broadcasting deal of the English Premier League that in, in overall value it increased, but it, but they added more matches. So exactly. to my point earlier, you know, the, the, the number that the average and that you're getting per game is actually lower. So what happens in, in that scenario? No? And, and, and let's not talk about new forms of consuming sports, short from video and highlights and all that, right? So, so what happens in such a world? Yeah. And then the, the, well, the one other component to this is, as we just talked about, there's more matches, less revenues per matches. You have the players. So the world, the global fan wants to see the best players. And the best players are telling you that they can't play this many matches at this level of yeah. intensity. So it's actually interesting because I went back and looked at the number of matches that, that players played 20 years ago versus today. And interestingly, it's actually not that different. The issue is, is the intensity of the matches, yeah. the demands of the matches because of the level of the sport getting, keep increasing or grinding tire. So 
you have these elite players that are saying, I can't play two or three times a week. So that's why I think some of these players are going to start to say, hey, maybe we should look at this NFL idea of fewer matches and make sure that all the matches are at a very high level so that the entertainment product for fans globally is also at a high level. Mm -hmm. And they're going to start saying, hey, I want to maximize the number, what I can make per match. Yeah. Not. And so I think that that's also another element that's um, going to start to, those thoughts are going to start to get into the system. To your point, I was looking at a report um, developed by FIFPRO, the player union, um, and he had some amazing stats last year. Um, when you look at Jude Bellingham, at his age, you know, he has four, and I'm going to look this up just to get it right, you know, but it's um, 4,000 minutes more than Wayne Rooney at the same age, 12,000 more than Gerrard, or 14,000 more minutes than David Beckham at his age. Or when you look at Kylian Mbappe, He's played 37% more minutes than Henri, Thierry Henry, another legend, right. you know? So you look at that and it's just, wow, is that sustainable for, for a player that age? You know, right. I think it goes back to your point, what you were saying. Yeah, and as we all know, like we, there seems to be an increase in, in injuries. I don't, I, you know, that's just what you, you look at, look at the lineup and you're just like, wow, lots of players are missing all the time. So the players I think are going to help drive some changes just because, like I said, it's not sustainable. Yeah, there's a limit, right? And then um, going back to the pillars of the sport business model, um, to me, the unique element of any football property or sports is the live stadium. Um, at the end of the day, it's kind of like what it sets apart from other forms of entertainment. Um, so what, what role do you believe that the stadium should play? Even though considering it's, it's a limited capacity, what role can it play within the sport business model? Well, the stadium is incredibly important because people want to feel that energy at home. Um, and so that, I think, was one of the issues with Syria is, is that you had older stadiums not owned by the clubs, not controlled by the clubs. And so as the stadiums got older and older, people didn't want to go to the, to the stadiums anymore. So you lost that kind of passion that was very unique or special in Syria. So I think people have, have learned a lot from that. So the stadium experience is changing. I think the way the stadium is thought of has changed. The idea, for example, like with Real Madrid, they're not only they have this, the stadium, but then the grass rolls out from underneath the stadium. And now you have yeah. a concert or you can hold a, an NBA game or lots of different events in, inside to make revenues every day, not just on match day. So that's like a bigger, so that's an important part of the economic element. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have a stadium that brings fan, that's modern enough and technologically savvy enough and has enough experiences within it to bring the fans to the game. So uh, I think there's, as you could probably see, there's a lot of people focused on their stadiums, renovating them, building new ones. Yeah. So and, uh, and the challenge for them is um, how do they get people in the stadium? All week long, not just for one match, right? And that's something that they're trying to explore, you know, and, and closing partnerships. I was talking with, um, you know, a CEO of Antrack Tech, and he was telling me just that, you know, how can we, we're, we're setting up concerts, uh, we're setting up corporate events, you know, esports competitions, you know, it's kind of like maximize the stadium as much as you can, because then that also brings new audiences to the ecosystem of the club, you no? Know? So, so that's another way of growth. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because you also are knowledgeable on on the different governance models and, and ownership models in football. No, and, and at World Football Summit we ran a survey um, in 2022, and many of the people who responded identified multi-club ownership as like kind of like the more um, optimal model. And, and and I think you know um, according to Deloitte in, in 2022, I think there was like a 70 multi-club ownership uh, models in in existence. When you look back in 2017, it was only like 28, you know, so you see the increase there. Oh, that's just, just amazing. So I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on the model and, and kind of like the potential it has for the future? Well, the the owners, when you speak to them, they'll talk about the, the synergies of the model. So you have more data, more information on players. You have more understanding about how to manage these types of businesses because there's really not that many, especially when you look at the elite level elite clubs with brands and 
And so understanding how to run those clubs in a sustainable way is actually a very particular expertise. And you can take that and apply to many different clubs. Um, so I understand all of the synergies behind it. My, my concern is, is just the integrity of game. So you have clubs with the same ownership or with some influence playing against each other. And how does the fan, does the fan think it's fair? Because even today, like there's a lot of matches or sports games where people feel like, Hey, the, the referee was biased and the referee is like a totally independent person. So imagine when the fan of, of one team is playing the fan of another team and they have similar ownership structures, then they're going to feel like, Hey, the, the owners wanted this team to win because they thought it had a better chance. It's, it's just, it opens up questions of integrity mm -hmm. in the sport. And I think that's a, something that people need to think about. And I think people also need to think through the influence that some owners will have on the sport itself. So you can imagine if, if someone owns someone or something or some entity or some country or whatever it is, controls a handful of a very important big league mm -hmm. clubs. And then they're not happy with the the competition or they're not happy with something else and says, we're going to do something else. So I, I just, I think there's just people need to think through all the implications of, of what multi-club ownership does to the sport. Yeah, I agree. And, and one question, because a lot of those deals are actually um, coming from American companies or are making private investors. And, and that's something that, that you could see increase during 2023, you know, and how they were involved. And I was wondering why, why this, which probably goes back to what you were saying before when we were speaking about the MLS, uh, but more importantly, do you see this trend continuing in the future? Uh, until something happens, I, I, I think that's, that is the trend. What the implications are to clubs that structurally today can't do that. So if you look at Bayern Munich, which is 51% owned by the fans, or you take Real Madrid or Barcelona, which are 100% owned by the fans, already they're in a different ownership structure than Man City, Man U, et cetera. So now you, you start to proliferate. There's going to be more and more clubs with like these types of unique ownership structures. What, what does that mean for these clubs that, that can't? Because uh, at least as far as I understand it, you know, structurally it's going to be challenging for them. You can't say they can't, but it's going to be challenging when they're owned by members. So everything's just kind of, it's like a little bit, the, the, the level of competition is, is always like changing because there's so many different ownership models and everything else. It's very different in the United States where like the NFL, the NFL even has a rule saying that it has to be owned by a person, uh -huh. controlled by a person. Um, so that's different as opposed to like having corporate entities and private equity firms and everything else controlling clubs. Mm -hmm. We just saw the, the recent deal with Manchester United, no? Um, what is your take on that? Because Manchester United, despite not being the best on the pitch for recent number of years, their brand is one of the most powerful in the world. Um, so what are your thoughts on that, um, on that deal? I was surprised that um, someone buys or an entity buys 25% of a club yet has a lot of control mm -hmm. in the so they own a minority interest, yet at the same time seem to have many of the characteristics of as if they owned a majority interest. So I, that was just sort of surprised me. Um, but the the value proposition, the, the the people who when they when the Glazers bought Man U, they took it to a next level because they applied the what they had learned in the United States in terms of mm -hmm. market brand identity and stadium experience and those types of things and then applied it to um to man U to take it to new heights and i think they were ahead of everybody in the uk um so they definitely have, they have that sort of first mover advantage which i think they're still capitalizing on mm -hmm. so they've built a great brand and and business and uh, i mean the sporting side obviously they're going to need to address but if you look at the dallas cowboys which is the most valuable sports team in the world, according to Forbes, and has the highest revenues of any sports teams in the world. Yeah. The Dallas Cowboys have not been to the Super Bowl since 1996. Yeah, this so, wasn't good for them either. No, so. 
Yeah. So obviously there's, um, it just also shows you, and that's why I try to explain to owners is, is winning isn't everything. There's a, there's a lot that goes into it beyond just winning. So in it, it, when people don't believe that I say, well, look at Juventus and Atletico Madrid, who, who did exceptionally well. I think both of it at some time, both of them had gotten to the Champions League final mm -hmm. twice, I think, um, within a short period of time. Yet, even during that short period of time, they weren't in the top 10 in revenues. Maybe they were 10th, but they weren't one of the top clubs in revenues, the top four or five or six. And it just shows you that even though they were winning, they weren't necessarily, that wasn't leading to more revenues. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what I try to tell owners is, is, you know, same thing, like take the Chicago Cubs, which their stadium was sold out every season for a long time and the the cubs never won the world series obviously they won it recently but before that and why why were they financially doing great well because they had this great stadium experience everyone who visited chicago wanted to go to wrigley field they had like an identity that they were like the lovable losers so there's a lot that goes into it um so it's more complicated yeah. than winning it is it is um it, it, Anyway, and, and I want to ask you, because you touched upon this uh, a little bit before about women's football. Um, it's finally getting the recognition it deserves, but one of the themes that I'm hearing a lot uh, from industry leaders is that it needs to manage to grow sustainably and not just seek growth for the sake of growth. Um, do you believe they will manage to do so? It's complicated. When you say women's football, there's women's football in the United States. There's women's football in Europe. And they both have different models, so it's a little more complicated. So I think in Europe, because the teams are associated with with um, men's football clubs as well, yeah. there's a lot of knowledge and and um, sharing of resources and understanding that I think the women's football in Europe will benefit from. Mm -hmm. And there's more resources associated with the team to kind of make it sustainable. So yeah. if you, if you're, if you're a big named club and you have a, a sponsor, you can tell them, Hey, we can, we can match and do some things with the women's team. So if you increase the sponsorship dollars, then it will all work and be better branded and everything. So th there's a lot of synergies of that. In the United States, they're, they're, they tend not to be owned by mm -hmm. the same owns the men's club inside. So I think it's like a more challenging um, economic situation. But the thing is, is the U.S. market is really large yeah. and women professional. The women's U.S. team is very popular. Mm -hmm. Women's sports are very popular and they mean something more than even the sport itself going to women's equality and quality and pay. There's a whole mm -hmm. value system that goes into it. So I think they're able to benefit from yeah. that in the United States. I think the issue that they're going to potentially run into is um, similar to what the MLS found is, is that as players, as people want to win their salaries of the yeah. players start increasing, that's your number one cost. And does that uh, break the system eventually? So I think that's the issue. Yeah. The, the, the wages to revenue ratio, no, that's, that's going to be one to keep track of, no? Um, well, this has been a great overview. I just want to close this segment, um, Stephen, with, you know, I don't know if you would be able to identify, let's say, three important changes, call it dynamics um, in football that you're keeping an eye out for? Well, I think we're, we still haven't seen really what multi-club ownership ownership changes are doing to the sport. Um, and not only is it multi-club, but you also have the, um, the entities that are linked with countries. So um, sovereign wealth funds and things like that. So I think that's still to be determined, but that has definitely changed as you brought up MCOs, mm -hmm. sovereign wealth entities, owning clubs and them being in MCOs and private equity firms being in MCOs. So that, I don't know if we fully understand what the implications of that. I would say the second thing is, is the, the rise of the player. I think when people grew up, you tended to support the team that you, the, in the city that you grew up in or your parents supported or relatives supported. And that's kind of, and then that's kind of, and then you just kind of followed that. Um, today, the younger generation seems to play, for example, you know, the video game FIFA 
They yeah. become familiar with the players. They trade players. They know the statistics of players. They follow players. So they're today, they may actually play FIFA and not play football or soccer. Yeah. So that is a totally new dynamic that I don't think people fully appreciate and understand uh, the dynamics of that. So um, the impact it's going to have where the players have more, the elite players have more and more power. Um, actually, yeah. most of the elite players have more fans than their clubs and yeah. make more money than their clubs do. So it's kind of a unique changing of the, the power dynamic. So I think that's kind of unique. And then also just the technology and, and the way people consume entertainment is changing dramatically. So we see people, you know, before you could only watch it on TV and now you could have people watch on TV and have a screen going on and want to see statistics and want to see unique angles. And, and so I think that that, that has dramatically changed how the broadcasters need to think about the value and 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 how they're going to keep this younger audience engaged because there's just a lot more opportunities um, for entertainment from Netflix to yeah sports and and everything gets able to get more and more niche. So before you only could watch certain sports on TV, now you can watch lots of things. So I think that's what football is going to have to start to grapple with, which is how do we come compete against that. And I think that's why there's this focus of we need more marquee matchups. Um, yeah. So, and maybe less, maybe, maybe the more is less. So yeah. have higher quality, more marquee matches, which is what's happening in college sports in America. So those, I would say the three biggest changes. Wow. Thank you for that. And that's super interesting. No, at the end of the day, what I'm getting at there is I think interest in sports and football is probably at an all time high. Um, the problem is, um, is that it's not only the live match anymore. You, you can consume football in, you know, highlights, videos, um, in games, in documentaries, in films, in, you know, there's so many ways to consume sport now. Um, and that leads to, I have once heard a description that I liked a lot, which said that the fan today is more fragmented and less passionate, meaning they have so many different avenues to consume that they're not really engaged to one single thing. At the end of the day, and then to your point is, they're not as passionate about a team. They're more following on the players, which they resonate more with, right? So, so it's interesting that Amazon that are gonna, you know, football properties are gonna have to adapt to. No, um, so yeah. Thank you, Stephen. That that was an awesome um, review of the industry. Um, I want to ask you because you're also involved in academia, and um, you know, you you're helping the UAX uh, Rafa Nadal School of Sport actually in, in their, um, I'm going to call it American adventure, right? So I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about that, about, you know, the MBA, about what your role there is and, and, you know, what, what type of, what can people expect from, from that experience? Sure. Um, well, UAX, UAX, uh, and Rafa Nadal are, um, have put together, uh, a, um, master's program in sports management, which I think is very unique and compelling. And as a part of that program, they, they do visits or to various areas. So I'm helping them with Miami. And the reason is, is as we were talked about, is there's a lot of ide fresh ideas and innovative ideas that are happening in the United States that can be applied globally. So in order to be uh, the best sportsman and professional, you need to understand the different leagues here and how they're organized, why they're organized, et cetera. So while, the, while they're in Miami, we're going to try to visit with executives of the Miami Marlins and Major League Baseball, the Miami Heat, which is obviously in the NBA, and um, uh, the Florida Panthers and the NHL, Inter-Miami with Messi, wow. um, and uh, executives at uh, places like IMG and, and Formula One. And there's just a lot of, great entertainment and sports in Miami. So I'm really excited to, to host the students there and to meet with all the executives and for them to have the opportunity to network with everyone and, and learn a lot about American sports. Miami definitely seems like the place to be. That's that for sure from a sports perspective, no? And given like your experience, not only in academia, but in, in the industry in general, what, what would you say, is there anything that, that you believe makes this program unique? I, I think the global perspective of it is unique. Um, you have the 
the vision and the values of Rafa Nadal at the top, and I know he's very focused on it and interested in it. And obviously, he, he's uh, he's much more than just tennis. He's a real sportsman um, in terms of his interest in various sports and and uh, his relationships. So I think some places are just they tend to have more of a focus on one particular sport. Uh, I think that uh, UAX and and Rafa Nadal have a have a more global, broader vision of what sports and entertainment is, and I think that makes it unique. Comes back to what we were discussing in the beginning, no values, identity, you know. So yeah, exactly. interesting, no. Um, Stephen, I, 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 it, if I may, I'm, I'm just going to take a little bit more of your time. And I want to be respectful of it with just some rapid fire questions, you know. And, and now that we're speaking about academia and educating future future sports industry leaders, is there any advice that you would give, um, you know, either current or future football industry leaders about what's going on in the industry? Well, I, th I think my advice, there needs to be more and more professionals trained um, in sports management because of the growth of, of uh, the interest in sports and seeing it as entertainment. So I think people just think, thought originally being a good sports management professional meant that uh, you kind of knew what was going on in the pitch. And as we discussed now, it's there's technological changes, there's ownership changes, there's, there's all types of things that are happening um, from a demographical perspective. So in order to be the best sports management professional, you really need to understand all those things and have many more tools. So I think that uh, my advice to students is, is, I think these master's programs um, are really important for students to get access to different um, different ways of doing things, different tools, different skill sets. Otherwise, it's very difficult to stay on top of the, all the change that's going on. Yeah, definitely agree. You know, it's just being open to new experiences. No? And, and your answer actually kind of um, goes back to what was the essence behind the rebranding we launched at World Football Summit last year which is basically that we need an industry that embraces becoming more professional, that adopts, uh, you know, innovative ways of growth and that commits to sustainability. You know, I call it financial sustainability, environmental sustainability, social sustainability. So um, we tried to summarize that under one claim, which is the football we want and the football we need. If I were to ask you, if you could define in one, two sentences, the football that you want or that you need, how how would you do it? Well, I, I look, I'm the global fan. So I didn't grow up in Marseille or Naples or Liverpool. I want to see the best players on the best teams competing on a regular basis. Um, and that excites me as a global fan um, from an entertainment perspective. So that to me is the, the and, and the players playing at the highest level that they can on a consistent basis. So that I think will draw more fans and will draw more interest when people see quality mm -hmm. in it. And then I also think that the more that we can bring in clubs from around the world, so this is why I'm a big supporter of the FIFA Club World Cup. Mm -hmm so that the best MLS team can play against the best team in Europe and play against the best team in Saudi Arabia and the best team in Asia or in Japan. That I think would excite the world because it allows everybody opportunity. Yeah. Um, compete against the best and their best players playing the best. So I think that's gonna, that's, I think it's gonna be tremendously successful. So mm -hmm. that's, I think a step in the right direction. Well, thank you for that. Um, when you were at World Football Summit Asia, no? um, I was just wondering, um, well, how was your experience there? And then more importantly, why are those type of events important for, you know, for the entire industry in general? Um, well, it was fascinating to get exposed to Saudi Arabia. So my congratulations to World Football Summit and those that were involved in, in putting it together um, because they put together an incredible speaker group. So you had access to people in Asia, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, which very difficult to get access to um, and see it live on the ground as well was was a, a great way to see the changes that are happening. But I find that these summits are 
great because you you get so many different perspectives on a panel that you just mm -hmm. normally wouldn't have. So you you have people from different leagues, different regions, all in one place talking about the sport and how to improve it. It's just invaluable. Um, so it really opened my eyes because there's just things I hadn't thought about before. People identifying, you know, change that's happening that I never really focused on before. So this is really invaluable to me. I agree. And actually, um, I look back at some of the panels and I've actually used them as podcast episodes because I, I truly feel that some of the learnings there is something that everybody can benefit from. So, so I totally agree that the, the, the knowledge there was, was amazing to see, you know, um, Stephen, there was, this was a wonderful conversation. Just, I need to ask you this question and please feel free to answer it or not, but imagine, you know, in 10, 20 years, you're writing another book, um, whether it's from the, you know, the, the Real Madrid way angle or what happened to uh, a given property or, or football team, who would that be or who would you like it to be? <laughs> um, I actually would like to write a book with, give the superstar player's name, Incorporated. Okay. Um, so, and I think that I'm curious, I'm sure the world is curious how these play because of the importance of these players now, as we just talked about, are more important yeah. than the clubs or what 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 does it what is that play like? How do they make money? How do they monetize their brand? How do they mm -hmm. think about their physical aspect? How do they think about their identity? Um, all the people that are involved in managing all these yeah. aspects of the player, their social media, their sponsorship, mm -hmm. their their physical components. I think that that's Obviously, it's never really been done before because you have to have an elite yeah. player reveal so that, but it can happen because we got Real Madrid, which was an elite club to allow an outsider to come yeah. explain it. In the end, I think Real Madrid's perspective, which was a good one, when I asked Florentino, why would you allow an outsider that doesn't speak Spanish, doesn't know anything about European football, doesn't know anything about Real Madrid, not a fan of Real Madrid, write a book about Real Madrid? And he said, because transparency equals trust and trust is the most important part of a brand. And I think that if a player looks at themselves as a brand and they want to have transparency to get closer to the fans and have more trust with the fans, hopefully one day I'll be able to convince one of the top, top athletes to um, let me in as an outsider and explain what their lives and their business really is. I think that'd be a fascinating book. It definitely would be. I hope you write it. I hope you get to write it. You're going to have, I mean, you already have a customer there. And and what a great way to end what you just said, you know, transparency equals trust, which equals kind of like the key aspect of a brand. No, that, that was an amazing lesson to end. And um, Stephen, I want to thank you because this has been, I had high expectations, but this definitely over-delivered. I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for your time. Um, where can people learn more about you and, and the work that you do? Well, uh, people, a lot of people from around the world connect with me via LinkedIn, and um, my, a lot of people connect with me with my Columbia email address, which is easily you can find on search. And so I get all types of contacts from people. I try to respond to as many people as I can. I even put my Columbia email in my books. Every time Real Madrid wins or loses, like, <laughs> you, you get an email. It's <laughs> as if I, <laughs> I was the person. But it's, it's nice to get different people's perspectives and, and everything else and interact. And then I try to go to these summits he said, and try to attend um, as many things as I can. So it's a great way to connect with people. Fantastic, Stephen. Hopefully we'll bring you back someday and then, you know, we kind of do another review of the industry. That, that would be so, so great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Stephen Mendes. That was such an awesome conversation and I hope you agree. It's going to be difficult, but let's try to summarize the main takeaways. The first thing is the importance of identity, of values, of culture to define that identity. It's what determines the success of a club. Um, and it has to be applied to the entire ecosystem, the fans, the players, the staff, everybody has to believe in that identity. And then the results will come. Just look at Real Madrid, just look at FC Barcelona, just look at the Spanish national team, right? There's a lot of great examples throughout history. Then what can football learn from American sports? Well, we've discussed this in the past with other guests, but it's a scarcity value. Just look at the NFL, they're 19 billion 19 billion in revenues is more than the top five football leagues in Europe combined. So for 
you know, that to happen, you need to ensure key quality matchups and also take care of the player's health. Then what are the things he looks out more for, for the future of the football industry? Well, first, the impact of the multi-club ownership model. Then um, where the player empowerment area is going to get to. I mean, we've already seen a lot of it and we're already seeing players being more popular than some of the clubs they play for. But where is this going to lead to? And finally, how are properties going to engage with the younger audience? I guess everybody's wondering, you know, so let's see what happens there. Um, and finally, um, it was a great way to end the conversation with the quote that he cited from Florentino Perez, which is transparency equals trust. And trust is one of the key things for any brand. Not, not only football, not only sports, but probably any industry that you think, can think of. Did anything else stand out to you? If so, reach out on social media and share it with us. And before you go, don't forget to subscribe and read the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your industry colleagues. You would not believe how much that helps us. Um, and I want to thank you for tuning into this episode of the World Football Summit podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Have a great rest of your day and we hope to see you next time.